Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On this week's program, how paramedics assist with National Geographic's The Great Human Race. We think about what could possibly go wrong uh, in this situation, in this environment, doing these activities, and then we match up. Okay, this is how we would treat this normally. Now let's shave that back a little bit. Can we use this drug for two different purposes so we don't have to bring two different drugs? Plus, could you have hypertension and not even know it? It's the problem with hypertension. There aren't many symptoms, so most people who have it aren't aware of it. And promising research in the fight against cancer. We are actually arming the NK cells, making them better killers of tumor cells by using exquisite control of the SHIP gene, using chemical inhibitors. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. They're all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we explore the two faces of hypertension. And we'll learn about new efforts in cancer research to help develop immunotherapy as a critical part of America's cancer-fighting strategy. But first, how are paramedics offering guidance and assistance to National Geographic's The Great Human Race? The life of an EMT and paramedic is usually filled with excitement and the need to respond quickly and effectively to many life-threatening situations. Joining us to give us an inside perspective on just how far afield these adventures can take us is Todd Curtis. He's a paramedic and the Medical Safety Oversight Director for the National Geographic program, The Great Human Race. Also joining us is Dr. Jeremy Joslin. He's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, and he's the Director of the Wilderness and Expedition Medicine Program at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Todd, let me start with you. Um, You were trained or have been trained as a paramedic here at Upstate Medical University. Tell us about that and anything else that you're up to right now. Correct. Um, so I started doing emergency medicine back in actually 1987 when I became a basic EMT and uh, did that in a number of other things for years. And in 2007, uh, I came to Upstate and uh, went from being a critical care EMT to getting my paramedic certification. Um, and how that, is that different? Uh, it's a more advanced um, skill set. Uh, a lot of it, the, it's less the practical skills. We both start IVs. It's more that as a paramedic, I have a lot more background and and judgment. Uh, There are things that as a paramedic you're allowed to do based on your own judgment of the scene at hand that as a critical care EMT, I would have to call a medical director and and explain to him what the situation was and request something. So it's a higher level of training. Absolutely. Okay, but then we just alluded to the fact that you've been involved in some other things like the great human race. So how did all of that unfold? Because you're not, you're you're doing the paramedic EMT stuff. Yeah, so throughout my life, I've been involved with uh, backpacking and kayaking and other things. And uh, one of the things that came out of the relationship when I was uh, doing my paramedic program was that I met and had the opportunity to interact with the physicians within the Department of Emergency Medicine, one of whom was Dr. Joslin. And uh, over time, um, some of the things that he was doing were intriguing to me, some of the, the remote races. And uh, the first job we actually worked together was uh, the Jungle Marathon in Brazil. I had the opportunity to go down with Dr. Joslin and work on a 10-day, multi-day stage running race. And that kind of started the process that, that's led to where we are today. Um, so since then, we've had a, a, a collaborative relationship where uh, I'll work on races that he has involved, or when I get opportunities to do TV work, um, Dr. Joslin serves as my medical director on those races, or on those events. So, Dr. Joslin, let me turn to you. You have had now a great deal of experience. You're running this wilderness medicine program here at Upstate. Tell us a little bit about what that means and yeah. how it's different from other aspects of emergency medicine. Sure. Um, I think it's, it's very similar to emergency medicine, um, but... Uh, there's some specialized knowledge 
and then uh, that emergency care instead of taking place uh, in the EMS world or in the in the emergency department takes place out in a remote or austere environment uh, and that's what our program uh, does we we teach physicians and uh, in, in even residents students uh, EMTs paramedics uh, how to practice in that environment uh, the specific knowledge that's involved in it and then we also provide uh, medical services to industry that requires medical care or medical oversight in those kinds of environments and at those, those kind of events. When Todd, you got involved in, in the National Geo program, tell us briefly how that came about and then what, what was your role? What were you supposed to be doing out there? So um, actually, interestingly, uh, the initial work came from that um, first uh, race that I went on. Uh, one of the fellow paramedics on that race uh, was contacted by someone who was working on a different National Geographic show that I went on to do um, and requested did he know anybody who could go out and work as a remote paramedic. Um, and that led to working on the, the Raft, which was a show that aired last year. Um, also so, National Geo. Also National Geographic. Uh, so uh, uh, I worked on the raft for the, that first season, both the pilot and the season, and Dr. Joslin was the medical director for that. And then uh, in, I believe it was May of last year, uh, I got a call. Uh, actually, Dr. Joslin and I were together working on uh, the, the Iron Man. Uh, and I got a call from one of the producers from The Raft saying that he was now on a new show called The Great Human Race. And uh, they had filmed a couple episodes in Africa and had some pretty significant concerns about the safety of the, the local services they were getting. So they asked me if I could come to Africa, which, of course, I said yes. And um, they said next week. And I said, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, I was called at 5.30 on a Tuesday evening, and the following Wednesday uh, I was on a flight to Ethiopia. So Adventure called and you responded, yeah, and exactly. obviously your connection with Dr. Joslin has played a significant role. Absolutely. Explain that a little bit. So what happens? You go out into the wilderness, and they're looking at you as kind of the hospital, the mm -hmm. medical center, the doctor, everything, surgeon, everything all wrapped up into one, in a sense, yep. in the wilderness. But you also have a safety net. Yeah, and, and, and it really it starts before I leave. Um, so Dr. Joslin and I consult on what equipment that I carry, what medications that I carry, um, and, and using the skill sets depending on where we're traveling would vary what we would carry. Uh, and, and, and what I'm able to do when I'm working in the middle of Ethiopia or Mongolia or Turkey um, the, the leeway of scope of practice is broader than if I'm working in the states where there's tight regulation on certifications and licensure. Um, so and a hierarchy of probably people you have to refer to or exactly, consult with or what exactly. have you. So when I work in, uh, on this particular job, uh, we worked in Alaska and in Oregon, my scope of practice was significantly reduced there because the timeline to get the certifications and, the, and everything needed to operate within the, what I'm capable of was limited. Um, so there it was much more of it had things developed more severely instead of providing care myself, we would have referred to a local clinic or a local hospital. So Dr. Jowson, you have been the medical director, kind of the safety net for a lot of his efforts here out there in the field. So what kinds of things come up? Oh, you could imagine, um, and I, I don't want to get into specifics, but you could imagine what kinds of questions come up when you've got a, a crew filming a show in Ethiopia, and if you watch the show and see some of the things that they're doing, uh, you could imagine some of the accidents or, or even just you know minor illnesses that, that might come up and the interesting questions that might come up as well. Uh, so it's, it's never dull. Uh, it's, it's a pretty exciting, exciting job. Um, and I, and I think that uh, just just watching the show, you could just if instead of watching the show and enjoying it for what it is, just start thinking about oh what what could have happened uh, while they were producing or filming this show there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with emergency medicine physician Dr. Jeremy Joslin and paramedic and outdoor medical safety advisor Todd Curtis. We're talking about travels worldwide, both with National Geo and I guess you've done it for others. Let me just get a little bit more detail on the show. So. The Great Human Race, what's the premise? 
So the concept was um, they brought in two individuals, um, one of whom is a, a PhD in anthropology who specializes in primitive tools. The other was a survival expert. And the concept was that uh, humanity started in near the Rift Valley in Central Africa. And in the process of moving to North America, they migrated over time. And that took hundreds of thousands of years. So these two individuals followed that migratory path. And as we went to different countries, they lived and operated as humans did when we first reached that area. So, so in other it, words, that period of time, that period of time, the, the information would be, that we knew about exactly. how they would have lived, the tools they may the or may not they have had, had the clothing, or, how they hunted, what they hunted, um, how they they operated. So each location, they as they progressed along, they got more developed tools, they got better clothing. Um, and, and they lived and made those clothes. They made those tools, and they lived for that period of time while we were filming as those individuals would have at it's that quite time. quite an ambitious undertaking. So I guess what I'm curious about, and I don't want to run out of time, give me an example of some major occurrence that had a challenge that you had and then either had to get on your satellite phone to call, or, or you were able to manage on your own? Uh, a lot of it was uh, outside of the normal scope of practice of a paramedic in, say, a Syracuse, um, were issues like infection and um, GI issues. So a lot of the, the consult time, um, I remember sitting uh, on the sat phone next to uh, a river 20 miles south of the border of Russia and Mongolia uh, with Dr. Joslin discussing which antibiotic we were going to use for a, a patient that was having some pretty serious GI issues. Um, and, and we tried a number of treatments and, and kind of gotten to that point. But how did you um, get those medications? Let's just, I mean, I'm assuming you came you came equipped with some things. Yeah, I but carry... But you couldn't have had everything. No, I, I don't, but I carry a pretty comprehensive kit with me. Um, and, and it depends on the show. There are shows where uh, literally we might be backpacking in with not just the medical kit, but with all of my normal gear. So I have to literally carry everything on my back. Like? Um, my sleeping bag, my tent, my... So, right. and, and then from there, I have to figure out what medical gear I can also carry. So give me an example of some of the medical gear that you might take. Dr. Jocelyn, what would he be taking? Yeah, um, a handful of antibiotics, a handful of medications for allergy um, or, or anaphylaxis, some of the serious problems. I think just to make it a little bit more broad, uh, what we do a lot of is really risk management, and we do a risk assessment. We think about what could possibly go wrong uh, in this situation, in this environment, doing these activities, and then we match up. Okay, this is how we would treat this normally. Now let's shave that back a little bit. Can we use this drug for two different purposes so we don't have to bring two different drugs? We sort of plan out, and we actually do a lot of strategizing over what to bring, how much of it mm -hmm. to bring because of weight and volume. And I'm sure. These are, these are big issues. Uh, so we do a lot of prep work, as, as Todd alluded to earlier, so that when we get into that situation, we're not scrambling around for a certain medication. We've already sort of thought of this issue in general, uh, and we've got a plan for it in place, and we've already got the right thing. Or we've got a plan to acquire what we need, or we have a plan to evacuate that person to where they can get the care. So, so all that, these circumstances we think about ahead of time. So what about things like where there's really like serious injury? Let's say someone has a bad fall or a run-in with an animal and they right. need they may need blood, they need suturing, they need things that are very hard to come by in the wilderness. What do you do in that situation? Yeah, and, and in that case, uh, and the best example I can give them, the closest near miss we had was in Mongolia. Um, we almost had two of our crew vehicles um, crash into each other. Um, at, at a high rate of speed. We missed each other by about six inches. Uh, and the, there were eight people between those two vehicles. So my thought as I see the two vehicles approaching each other is that I'm going to have to deal with uh, a serious trauma in eight people, of which I'm one of them. Um, and at that point in time, we were a uh, 12-hour drive on dirt roads would be um, pretty broad. Uh, and I needed to figure out how to get back to the capital to then fly to Korea, which would have been the closest real trauma center. So my job would have been to stabilize them uh, and 
alert Dr. Joslin and a whole team of people to be ready um, to deal with these potentially eight patients. But I guess, fortunately, the postscript here is you didn't fly. We missed fly. each other. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the type of event that we have to be prepared to potentially deal with, and that involves evacuation processes and, and that we put into place in advance so we know what we're going to so do. So before we run out of time, what led you to this whole thing? I mean, what what you obviously chose not to go the medical route, the classic medical route, like Dr. Joslin has done. So what led you to all of this? Yeah, it actually was a lot of timing. Um, when uh, when I first started, and I was actually thinking about going back to medical school, I went back, uh, re-careered, and went back and got my bachelor's in biology with the plan to go to medical school. And um, I keep traveling the world and getting these amazing <laughs> opportunities. And uh, so that's adventure calls, adventure calls. And uh, if it eventually stops, I might go back and uh, and and pursue something more advanced. But uh, right now, uh, I'm having a lot of fun. And, and in the meantime, you're also teaching. I understand. Yep. yep. I teach uh, at Upstate uh, ACLS and PALS, and within the paramedic program. Uh, and then I also have chances to teach around the world with uh, remote and wilderness medicine. So. Well, the whole field is fascinating, and I want to thank you both for coming in and sharing it. I think it's a window into a world that many of us really don't know much about. I mean, we understand the importance of EMTs and paramedics in our daily lives here in a more kind of urban environment, but the fact that you guys really do go out there and and rescue people and keep people safe and alive in these harrowing types of situations is very reassuring. So I want to thank you both very much for coming in and sharing that with us. Thank you. Yeah, and, and you're going to continue to work together. Is that the plan? That's the plan. Next and month, new, adve new adventures <laughs> coming all the time? Yep. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Jeremy Joslin. He is the um, Associate Professor of Emergency Medics, Medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Director of the Wilderness and Expedition Program. And uh, Todd Curtis, a Paramedic and Medical Safety Oversight Director, most recently for the National Geographic Program, The Great Human Race. Coming up next, the two faces of hypertension. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, nearly one-third of all adults aged 18 and older have hypertension, otherwise known as high blood pressure. And the effects on their health can be devastating, especially over time. Here with more on this chronic and omnipresent disease is Dr. Harold Smullyan, Professor of Cardiology Emeritus at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Smullyan. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So let's begin by helping our listeners understand what we mean when we say hypertension or high blood pressure. What exactly is it? Well, it's the pressure <clears throat> in the arteries that uh, created by the pumping of the heart, and that raises the pressure in the arteries, and when it's higher than normal, um, that's what's called hypertension. So how does one know if they have this? I mean, what are the symptoms of hypertension? Well, that's the problem with hypertension. There aren't many symptoms, so most people who have it aren't aware of it. And the only way to find out is to be screened for it in one way or another. Um, the disease just hides in the dark and causes problems when you're not aware that you have it. Are there ever circumstances where people are aware? I mean, is there some population or subset that have things like severe headaches or that kind of thing? That usually only occurs when the hypertension is very severe and has been present for a long time. So most people do not have symptoms, and it's, that's the major problem with detecting the disease. So do we know what causes it? Well, the proximal cause is really unknown. Uh, we know a few things that, are, uh, that produce the high blood pressure, but what actually is the major problem is uncertain. Probably has to do with genetics because it does tend to run in families. So when we talk about hypertension, are there more, is there more than one type? In other words, is there a, a primary type and then other types? There are some other diseases that, uh, that produce high blood pressure. 
And the blood pressure in those cases is a, is a consequence of, this, of the first disease. But that tends to be a rather uncommon occurrence, and most people with hypertension have the, the type of hypertension of unknown cause. So when we talk about hypertension, I mean, who is most likely? You, you alluded to the fact that there's a genetic link, that it runs in families. What are some of the other risk factors contributing to it? Well, there are a number of items that, that we encounter in everyday life that can raise the blood pressure and produce hypertension or make it worse. Uh, for example, the use of excessive salt in the diet or um, a lot of alcohol, uh, more than several drinks per day can, can raise the blood pressure. Diet pills can raise the blood pressure. People who are obese tend to have high blood pressure. Um, How about smoking? Smoking will surely raise high blood pressure. That's a common one. Does it run? Is it is it, there? Are there? Since it's genetic, does it seem to run in groups of people? In other words, is it racially linked in any way? There is a, a, a racial link in that Black Americans tend to have a, a higher prevalence of hypertension than everyone else, and in, indeed, it seems to be worse in those patients than than in the others. So, what's the single most significant factor in determining whether you whether or when? you may actually end up with hypertension. Well, I think uh, one of the things that happens is that although the uh, disease is quite frequent, quite common disease in in adults, one in three overall, the prevalence of the disease doubles uh, by the time you get to the age of 75, so that if you're looking at a group of um, four or five elderly people sitting around talking to one another, four out of the five of them have hypertension. Wow. And so that's really a very common disease, uh, more common than most others. Does stress play a role, too, in terms of raising it and then continuing? I mean, I I can understand under a stressful circumstance, your blood pressure might rise. But does it, if you have kind of an ongoing stressful life, does it mean that you will continue to have high blood pressure as an ongoing problem? Well, the cause of high blood pressure is really unknown, so I couldn't say that stress wasn't related. But it doesn't seem to be a a fundamental part of the disease. It does not. How about gender? I mean, is it more common in men than women or the other way? Well, there was a big survey run by the United States Public Health Service that showed that it was about the same in both sexes, about one in three in most midlife adults. So there's not the protective factors that people often think of in females when it comes to heart issues? Well, they're protected from coronary heart disease uh, by by their gender. Uh, but the um, the frequency of hypertension is about the same in both sexes. Is it ever seen in children? Yes. It's much less common in children, but it uh, it does occur uh, and, and starts to develop sometimes in teenagers, picked up during sports examinations and such. So does it, again, well, we're going to get to treatment in a, in a bit down the road, but bottom line is it's it's the kind of thing then, since it's silent, and it has potentially very devastating consequences, which we'll get to. I mean, what then is necessary in terms of a, you know, knowing you have it? Is it the kind of thing you need a routine screening, basically on an annual basis? Well, I think screening is the most important thing since um, symptoms are what bring most patients to their physician. Since this disorder doesn't have many symptoms, um, screening is important to find it. Uh, and it's important to treat it because the treating is uh, therapy is successful in preventing the risks. So um, I think blood pressures ought to be taken in many, many places. There now, uh, you can have your blood pressure taken in, in drugstores, um, and you can have it taken at the state fair where we run a, a uh, an operation to take people's blood pressures, and many other places where it can be taken to find patients who have no symptoms. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with cardiologist Dr. Harold Smullyan, and we're talking about hypertension. So we've been talking about it as kind of the elephant in the room. What does it do to you, and what are the consequences or complications of having it? Well, it, um, it does damage to the, um, to the circulation while you're having no symptoms. And what happens is that when, when the uh, disease becomes severe and does, the, does this sort of damage, one uh, can get a stroke or a heart attack or have heart failure uh, or peripheral vascular disease uh, with insufficient flow in the legs and so on. So it, uh, it does its damage while you're not aware of it. Do people seem to also think it can contribute perhaps to cognitive failure like dementia down the road? I mean, is there some 
Is there some link there? It, it does. There is a relationship between uh, the kind of high blood pressure in the elderly and, and their ability to understand and cognate, correct? So it, it really has long, long-lasting, far-reaching, and very significant effects on the body. It does indeed. Now, there are some, I mean, the kind of hypertension that you might experience when you're a younger person, how is that different or is it different than what you might experience as an older person? Well, as I said, the, uh, most of the patients have no symptoms, and so there is not much difference. But I think the, uh, the cause of the disease is, uh, is somewhat different between midlife and, and, and advanced years. Um, during the aging process, the main arteries of the body become stiffer. And as they become stiffer, the blood pressure rises as a consequence of that increased stiffness. That's not the case in midlife. So that the nature of the high blood pressure tends to change as you age. And does it therefore have other consequences as a result? Or well, many more the, severe consequences potentially? Many of the, uh, of the complications of hypertension are the same irrespective of the age. Um, patients who are elderly tend to get uh, more disturbances of the brain and the kidney perhaps than than those in midlife. So, but is it true then that people as they age might have both types of hypertension or from both causations or consequences? Absolutely, because uh, people who develop hypertension in their 50s or before that, they eventually age too. And so the, um, the complications of aging are superimposed on those of the earlier form of hypertension. So let's get to treatment. What basically, first of all, what do you tell your patients over all the years in terms of the importance of screening, how frequently you need to screen? Because there's got to be some variability in blood pressure. Everyone talks about the, this so-called white coat phenomenon where you take a blood pressure in a doctor's office and it's not necessarily reflective of your everyday life. So in everyday life, what, are people, what do you recommend people to do? Well, the problem is that, that the ordinary blood pressure measurement is reasonably inaccurate. And so one has to take a number of them to find out what the average blood pressure is over time. Now, since uh, a single blood pressure in the doctor's office is not representative of what goes on all day long, it's important to, uh, to uh, take the blood pressure at home frequently or even better use one of the ambulatory blood pressure devices uh, that measures the blood pressure every 20 or 30 minutes during a 24-hour period. You can then find out whether the blood pressure is elevated much, much or most of the time. Uh, that being the case, uh, then, then it becomes oblig obligatory to, to try and lower it. And how is that done? Well, there are a number of medications now that are quite effective in lowering the blood pressure, and it's important to do so because even though the cause, proximate cause of hypertension is unknown, treatment works and it lowers the risks of the complications that might ordinarily occur later. Is it difficult to figure out what of these various medications that are available? I mean, is it difficult to find the one that works or the ones that work, or is it a matter of titrating dosage? I mean, is it, because I know that there, I have read in the past that there are some hyperten patients with hypertension who are quite difficult to control. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <clears throat> there, there, there are some guidelines that one can follow and, and choosing the drugs that, that work for most people. But in many cases, it's a trial and error process uh, to pick the drug that works the best for a specific individual and to find the right dose. It's often necessary to use more than one drug. Most patients are on two, and resistant patients are on three. So is it ever the case that you really have um, an almost a, an impossible task in terms of controlling the blood pressure? I mean, yes. have you found those really resistant cases? Yeah, there are, there are clearly resistant cases. Uh, the first problem with those is to make sure the patient's taking the blood pressure medicine at all. <laughs> so they're being compliant. That they're compliant. If there are, there are still resistant cases that are difficult to treat and, uh, and require um, very intense and, uh, dosage and, and m multiple medications. You mentioned earlier that even children can show or teenagers can begin to show hypertension. Are these same medications applicable 
in, in a pediatric population as well, or have they not been you know, tested in that environment? I'm not a pediatrician, so I can't answer that question very well, but I would think that it would be important to try and control the blood pressure as well. Incidentally, besides using medications, lifestyle changes are important too. Yes, tell us about that. Well, uh, one ought to eat a prudent diet, avoid smoking, try and lose weight if one is obese. Uh, and, exercise also? And be also? sure to exercise because that does lower the blood pressure. Oh, so that's an interesting point. So actual exercise, if you actually stay in motion, that actually helps with the whole process. It does indeed, yes. Yeah. Well, this is really inform- interesting information, but basically what you're saying, the bottom line is you should know screen yourself, know if you have hypertension, and then obviously go about a rigorous effort to try to treat it. Exactly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming in and sharing all this very important information with us. My guest has been Dr. Harold Smullyan. He's a professor of cardiology emeritus at Upstate Medical University. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Take a load off and put a load on or how to gain weight without really trying. Well, dear listeners, we've all known the only way to lose weight is to take in fewer calories than we use to keep our brain and body humming along and moving around. Basically, eat less, move more. And my being a runner, always trying to get faster while staying healthily skinny, I've been impressed with how finely tuned our brains and bodies are to keep the food coming. On days I run more, my body sends a message using more calories, which releases appetite hormones, which trigger the belly yell, hunger, and the brain command, eat, eat which sometimes triggers feet to the fridge, hands to the ice cream box and the big spoon to shovel it in, even while the mind is trying to say, not the most healthy calories there, Rich, stop. (laughs) Scientifically speaking, this is the, quote, caloric compensation effect, end quote, hungry, rich version who loves ice cream. Recently, I've been reading more very interesting research about those hormones shouting, eat, Turns out things other than burning calories with activity can release them. One is not sleeping enough, which may be why chronically sleep-deprived folks tend to be heavier, and at least a third of us usually don't get enough sleep. We've known for a while, too, that sitting too much can produce, quote, metabolic syndrome, end quote, which can result in heart disease type 2 diabetes and obesity, etc., etc. Some other research compared people sitting versus standing and appetite hormones and hunger and showed that, and I quote, because a dramatic reduction in energy expenditure was not accompanied by reduced appetite, prolonged sitting may promote excess energy intake leading to weight gain in both men and women. Translation, even though we may be sitting around doing little or nothing physically and thus burning relatively few calories, we can still feel just as hungry as when we're moving around a lot, and then we overeat and gain weight. Turning that on its head, just standing around may, us, may allow us to burn more calories without triggering the, quote, caloric compensation effect, that is, without getting hungry and eating. Thus, standing more may keep us from gaining weight unnecessarily. All of this research got me to get a sit-stand desk a year or so ago, and after a few months of adjusting from sitting all day at the office— I now stand habitually and automatically and sit briefly only when I get tired. Try it. You might like it. And if you're not up, no pun intended, for such a big change, try making sure you get up and move around at least two to three minutes every half hour. Experts say that may be enough to ward off metabolic syndrome. I'm Dr. Rich, a stand-up kind of guy, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in.
Next up, new efforts in cancer research to help develop immunotherapy as a critical part of America's cancer-fighting strategy. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. New immunotherapy drugs are showing significant effectiveness against a broadening range of cancers, including rare and intractable tumors often caused by viruses. Now, these advances suggest that this treatment approach is poised to become a critical part of America's anti-cancer strategy. Here with more about his own research in this area is Dr. William Kerr. He's professor of pediatrics, microbiology, and immunology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Kerr. Thanks so much for coming in. Hi, Linda. Good morning. So um, basically, help us understand, we use the term immunotherapy. Give us more of a broad overview of what really is, what does that mean? Well, first of all, let's talk about, we're talking about immunotherapy and the concept of cancer. I mean, you could discuss that also in chronic infectious diseases like HIV and things like that. But let's focus today on cancer. Um, so we're, it's getting the, the, the basic approach or idea behind immunotherapy is getting the immune system to kill cancer, to surveil and look for cancer cells, metastases, residual cancer cells hiding in the body, perhaps after the initial treatment with cancer or radiotherapy, and then asking the immune system to go in and mop up any residual cancer cells, and including, importantly, the seeds of the next tumors. The, there is thought to be a cancer stem cell or a, a, a tumor cell for every, a stem cell for every tumor. So getting the immune system to basically clean up that, those last bits, and you might think those last bits aren't important, but that's what leads to relapse a couple months, a couple years down the road. So it's not so much as, an in, as it's a sole treatment, but right now is more of adjunctive treatment. It is in the early days, but potentially, and we may see it become an upfront therapy when it, we get better at doing it and learn what the limitations are and what, where it can work really well. It could be that it could be a first-line therapy, but... I think a lot of the approaches, uh, and this sort of happens in cancer, uh, the first phase one clinical trials ha are done with patients who have failed other therapies. You know, of course, why put somebody through something when there's an effective therapy and it works? Don't try a new therapy on those people. So uh, frequently it's done with patients who fail therapy, and that's why we've seen successes, for instance, in melanoma, which has been a very tough cancer to develop new therapies for. Uh, some new compounds came along in the last couple of years that, uh, that turn off the genes, the oncogenes that help melanoma survive, but the melanoma cells quickly become resistant to those. So we had to turn to other things. Immunotherapy was tried, and that's why it's, I believe there's now an approved, FDA-approved drugs to uh, treat melanoma. So Jimmy Carter was one example that comes right. to mind, mm -hmm. and he had basically a metastases to his liver. And he's and actually stopped therapy because it's worked so well. Not, so, be, not because it didn't work. He halted his therapy because, I mean, I, I'm not his physician. I don't know the exact, but from what he said publicly, that it, they felt that his, his disease had been controlled by the new therapy. So that's, that's really striking and remarkable. Tell me about your work, though. You're doing mm. mice models. Right. What are you trying to, what have you, what are you trying to accomplish? In well, th this came out of two distinct areas of research in my lab. We've been working on this gene called SHIP1, SHIP1, which is uh, we found was important for cancer cells to survive. So we developed small molecules uh, about seven, eight years ago that turned off the SHIP gene, and we found they could kill various hematopoietic cancers, blood cell cancers like leukemia and lymphoma. So uh, then, just let's so for the layperson, you developed little molecules mm -hmm. that you literally would inject into. The blood of a, of a mouse? Yes, we could in, in treat the mice with the compound, inject the, the compound. It would go throughout their body. And uh, we, for instance, have already published it can actually kill human multiple myeloma cells, tumors, growing in a mouse that has no immune system. So as, as cancer models, we want to study human tumors. We, 
and when we're first studying things, we can't do a clinical trial in patients that would be too dangerous. So we, we study them in, in mouse models. So we can actually implant human tumors and get them to grow in mice that have no immune system. Because if they had mice had an immune system, they immediately kill the human tumor cells, and that wouldn't be a very useful model. So uh, with these new inhibitors of shit, we first showed they were basically acting like chemotherapies. They could directly attack the cancer cells. But then a graduate student in my lab, actually an MD-PhD student, Matt Gummelton and I came up with this idea that, because we've been working on the SHIP gene in NK cells, and we found that by making a genetic mutant of the SHIP gene, we, the, these natural killer cells that normally attack tumors in the body were turned off when the SHIP gene was mutated. They didn't work well. So, so that was working against your... That was working against the idea. But then we came up with this sort of counterintuitive hypothesis that because this negative regulator, the SHIP1 gene, when we mutated it, made NK cells not work so well. And the NK cells? Are, are, are attacking our immune cells, lymphocytes, that kill both cancer cells and virally infected cells. So the, so the unexpected or the unwanted consequence of your SHIP gene mm. alteration was that you were actually limiting the immune yeah. system. And But it led, it led to this idea that, and this is a idea that's been circulating in the NK cell field, that if NK cells are chronically turned on, always turned on, they eventually hit a point where they just turn off. They become disarmed. And we said, okay, we have these chemicals that can turn off the SHIP gene, and we can turn it off and, let, and then let the cells rest and, and be, go back to normals. Uh, in other words, we can temporarily turn off the SHIP gene using these chemical inhibitors, whereas a genetic mutation completely turns off the gene, and the NK cells are just going to burn themselves out. They'll be constantly active. So you bus, bottom line realize that there is an alternative way to... Yes. to um, basically control the, sh the, the SHIP gene, right? turning it on and turning it off, to what end? What was the goal of that? The goal was to find, test the hypothesis. If we just temporarily turn off the SHIP gene, maybe we can actually make the NK cells hyper-responsive, better killers, because we're not getting them to the point that they disarm. They're chronically turned on and, and become disabled. If we can just temporarily turn off, take off, take this break off them, They'll kill maybe for a couple of days, and and wipe out potentially wipe out tumor cells. So anyway, it was kind of a a little bit of a a a, a wild idea, but uh, Matt and I tried it and it worked in a mouse lymphoma model. So mice with lymphoma growing in that that's, uh, uh, we found that we could uh, extend their survival by treatment with this, these ship inhibitors, and and what and and importantly we could get long term survivors. So what, what we said then was, okay, if we, we are actually arming the NK cells, making them better killers of tumor cells, by using exquisite control of the SHIP gene, using chemical inhibitors, just turning it off for like two, three days, now these NK cells could go around the body, surveil and look for tumor cells, in this case lymphoma, and kill them and actually extend survival to mice. And even we got some long-term survivors that lived out for a year. A mouse, laboratory mouse lives for typically two years. So a year is a long time. That's, you know, maybe 30, 40 years. And, so you basically know. had some success. Yeah. Let, me, let me get to the point, though, that you recently have gotten a Fulbright and you're going to be doing further study about that. But hold the thought for a second. Sure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Dr. William Kerr. We're talking about his research into immunotherapy as a method for treating cancer. So you have this Fulbright. What exactly does that mean, first of all? Well, so the Fulbright scholarship is, I think, these are 50-plus years uh, old. Uh, and what they do is uh, the government, uh, through the Fulbright scholar, Ful William Fulbright was a senator, of course, and he started this program. He wanted uh, academics and scientists in the United States to be able to travel abroad, interact with other scientists, academic colleagues internationally. And uh, so I am eligible for a sabbatical every six to seven years. And I, I said, I'm going to go do a sabbatical. And I applied to last August to the Fulbright. And what they've done is they've given me uh, six months of support. Uh, uh, Upstate will, of course, as part of my sabbatical, uh, continue to pay my salary. But what the Fulbright does is it, you know, it helps me pay for the rent. You know, I have to have an apartment to live. I'm going to France, by the way. And, um, you know, so it provides uh, money for me to, 
enables me to go away for six months. So why France, first of all? Well, so there's a really very prominent uh, Center for Immunology in Marseille, the Center for Immunology Marseille Lumini. Its director is Eric Vivier. Eric Vivier and I have been uh, collaborators for now several years. We just published a paper in the Journal of Immunology about a year ago that was featured by the editor. So we've had a, a track record of success together. And Eric, like me, is also working on a, a break or an inhibitor of natural killer cells, a different enzyme. And we both have this idea that when these breaks are turned off in natural killer cells, they become in, they get into a state where they're constantly active, but can, counterintuitively, that constant state of activity leads them to eventually just turn off and say, "Okay, I'm going to quit now." In other and words, they kind of they kind of burn themselves burn out. Burn themselves. That's a great way to put it. And they be they still exist in the body. They don't die, but they're sitting there basically not doing their job. They're ineffective. They're sort of tired, <laughs> if you will. So. So we, we've developed these, like I said, uh, I've pioneered these small molecule inhibitors of my break, the SHIP1 gene. And so I wrote to Eric and I said, uh, I want to come spend six months with you, do a sabbatical. We can work on this idea together. I can also help you target your, your enzyme, your break. And let's apply for a Fulbright scholarship. And he wrote a letter of support for me. I actually had to write a five or six page proposal on what I would actually do if, while I was in, in Marseille working with Eric. And that was uh, the peer review committee obviously liked it because uh, I was awarded uh, this uh, last well, winter. Con congratulations on that. <laughs> that but, so the bottom line is you're going there. You're going to be spending, I guess, next fall you're going to be going and you're going to be spending six months. September through probably February, possibly into March. And working along with Dr. Vivier right. and trying to basically both help his research, but also continue to pursue your own. That's a, a point of the Fulbright is to have that collaborative interaction, not just me benefiting or Eric benefiting, but have a sort of a mutual synergistic. And that leads me to my next point. Sure. Isn't more and more, aren't there more and more efforts being made throughout uh, scientific research to support and encourage collaboration? I mean, right. I know that... Um, this, this Sean Parker has has come up with a lot of money for a new institute, but there have been others efforts to try to take individual scientists who historically have been functioning in their own little silos and getting them to actually collaborate, yeah. work together, and actually in that sense move uh, scientific advances forward at a much more rapid right. pace. So the, the cancer moonshot and and. Uh, as I, it, I was just down in, in Washington, D.C. as part of a SUNY, and we heard the N NCI, National Cancer Institute, people talk about the cancer moonshot. And this that's a government President initiative. President Obama's initiative to, like we had a moon, uh, Kennedy predicted, we'll right. go to the moon by this date. He's saying, let's accelerate cancer research by providing a bolus of money for the next five years. Maybe we can, instead of trying to cure cancer in 10 years, let's try to cure it in five years. Because think about how many lives we'll save if we do that. Right. So I, I, the numbers I've seen, and don't hold me this, because there's always budgetary discussions going on, and there could be $600 million devoted. There may be funding initiatives that are going to be announced next winter for those. To get scientists to, if you will, come out of their silos, work together collaboratively to try to accelerate the pace of research. But there seems to be some concern about some un unintended consequences with some of the mm -hmm. immunotherapy that, and we only have a little bit of time. I mean, sure. are you concerned? What are your major concerns? Well, we're already concerns? seeing that with the first generation immunotherapies. They're working very well, and I don't mean to sound negative about them. If I had metastatic melanoma, I'd be on that drugs too, but there have been significant side effects. So there's a reason these breaks have been put on the immune system that they've evolved. The immune system has to be tightly controlled so it doesn't got to control and attack normal healthy tissues. We are seeing that with some of the immunotherapies. In many cases, those have not been life-threatening. I think in some cases they have. But on balance, it, and that's why they're approved drugs, there's been a huge benefit. So I think that the hope in the future is that you will learn how to turn these breaks on and off in a way that can only benefit us and perhaps kill cancer in a new and different and maybe more effective way. That's the hope with our inhibitors because they allow us very precise control. We can give them the chemical only hands around for a long time. Terrific. Sure. Well, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. My guest has been Dr. William Kerr, Professor of Pediatrics, Microbiology, and Immunology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Most of us are veterans of signing forms, especially if we're having a procedure done. Nurse practitioner and poet Vanetta Masson offers us a lighthearted yet penetrating take on what we really know when we sign off on these innumerable forms of disclosure. She starts us off with a brief epigram from Hippocrates, one of the earliest physicians, who believed that physicians should not always tell the patient everything. Here is her poem, Full Disclosure. Perform your medical duties calmly and adroitly, concealing most things from the patient while you are attending to him. Maybe they have it right, those who say the truth is too strong for a person who's sick. Look at it this way. Full disclosure means telling you that some illnesses elude all cures, that each life has a span, and yours may be short, by which I mean shorter than mine, that beneath the veneer of medicine lies the bedrock of uncertainty, that medical research is not rocket science. It's infinitely more complex. That experts, like search engines, traffic in theory, conjecture, shaky data, and sometimes outright hoax. Now the good news. You may recover, despite stiff odds. The body is smarter than you can imagine. The world of healthcare has fixers and healers. What one can't do, the other can. This is the truth. If you're the sick person, sign below to acknowledge receipt. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore postpartum depression and learn more about how emergency medical personnel offer help to our community. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook or you can follow us on Twitter. Or why not check out the What's Up at Upstate blog? That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening.